Welcome back to the show. This is Caitlin, producer of the Rural Futures podcast with Dr. Connie. Subscribe where you listen so you don't miss an episode and keep that feedback coming on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rural Futures. Thanks for listening. For me, an inclusive leader is someone who is emotionally intelligent, who has the developmental capacity to bring people from all walks of life together and help them innovate and create things that didn't exist before. Rural Futures, the podcast where we connect thought leaders and doers at the intersection of technology and what it means to be human. Every episode, we talk with entrepreneurs, researchers, and achievers to create impact for generations to come. And now, here's Dr. Connie. Hi, and welcome back to the Rural Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Connie. And joining me today is Dr. Helen Fagan, a leadership and diversity scholar and educator who's passionate about developing global leaders who create better tomorrows. Thank you so much for being here, Helen. Please tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. Well, hi, Connie. I'm so excited to be here. It's so fun. Well, I am from Iran originally. I have lived in three countries, five states in the U.S. This summer, I will celebrate 35 years of marriage to my favorite human, Scott. We have two incredible sons who I am just delighted to be their mom, and they married just brilliant women that I love that I have girls in my life um, as my family now. And um, I'm a Nana. I became a Nana last October. And Beckett is my pride and joy right now. He's, he's given my husband a run for the favorite human spot. <laughs> I can imagine that. And, you know, I also appreciate not only your expertise in leadership, but the way you live your life in leadership. And having your family as such a top priority for you is so impressive. But also even the way you're speaking about your daughter-in-laws. Now, that doesn't always happen with mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws. And I just have always honored and appreciated that about you because you really walk the talk when it comes to leadership. Oh, well, thank you. You're, you're very generous with your words, and I so appreciate it, Connie. I think one of the best things we can do as women is to support other women in our lives. I believe that's uh, one of the things that leaders especially need to be doing, whether you are a person in a position of leadership or you are just an influencer in other people's lives, it's important. I so agree. And I think it's, it's such a great time in history to really bring forward the fact that, you know, our families are important, even if we're in traditional job settings or leadership roles or we're entrepreneurs or, or whatever the case, um, and recognizing that people want full lives. And, and being in a leadership role or spot in an organization shouldn't, you know, exclude family and life. It, in fact, I think as we transition and we'll talk about the future of leadership, you know, through our conversation, embracing this whole living, especially as we have more dual working couples is just so important. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my firm foundations in leadership is that we need to get away from either or thinking. Either I am a leader, an executive, a professor, whatever I am, or I am a mother. We have to embrace it and we have to give space for both of those to exist. People, I think they get the idea that it means going 100% all the time, and that's not the case. I need to give 
time for each of those things. And that doesn't mean I can be all things to all people at all times. Yeah, it's so true. And I think we need to help organizations understand that. Um, what it means to be truly flexible and not just say it. You know, that's why we see women leaving traditional jobs to create their own so often. They need that flexibility, but they also need the autonomy. Do what they really want to do, how they want to do it, um, and create environments that really are supportive of them and them building their own futures. I'm a huge proponent of developing your inner leader, you know, leading yourself. I think for too long, we've seen this leader is what you've just described. It's the CEO. It's somebody with a, a title. Um, and everybody else is just supposed to follow along. That was a very industrialized view of leadership for scholars and practitioners like yourself to come forward and really champion, not only in organizations, but with students, the next generation, new paradigms of leadership. Absolutely. And I am right there with you that we're in a new century. We are in an opportunity to where we don't have to have a start time and an end time to our work. We can be fluid in that, but we also need to be setting boundaries that are healthy. Boundaries that say that it's okay for me to appreciate and enjoy my family at the same time as giving out of my expertise and my passion. I don't have to choose one or the other or sacrifice one or the other. There was a research study that was done that was looking at women who had been stay-at-home moms not seeing themselves as leaders. It was really helping them to understand that leadership, the definition of leadership is about who the person is and how they're influencing other people. And so I think if we can do that for women, if we can model that for young women who are coming up, my students, graduate students, being able to say, it's okay. You can enjoy motherhood and you can contribute from your professional life and your expertise and your knowledge and your passion. Well, you know, that's what a lot of students are asking. You know, what we found at the Real Futures Institute is that students, you know, intern here or want to be part of a serviceship experience in a community, which you're, you're leading for us here at the Real Futures Institute. But at the same time, they're really wondering how adulting works. What does it look like to grow up and live my own life and build what I want to build? We've seen a few students graduate and go out into the workplace and come back and they're like, oh, Dr. Connie, they're like, I didn't expect this. It's not like working at RFI. <laughs> you know, how do I deal with this difficult boss or this culture I don't enjoy or fit into? And I think sometimes that's where we're still in this transition era of what does it look like to be inclusive, you know, which is a, an expertise area of yours, but also what does this future of work look like? Just like you've mentioned, this whole idea of clocking in and clocking out doesn't work because first of all, we're expected to always be on. There's really a, I think a global shift in how this is all going to continue to change. And we need people that, that are willing to step out and do it differently with their students, but also our own children and grandchildren, right? I mean, teaching them how the world can be in a different way is so important. Absolutely. I have a sister who's 16 years younger than I am. And so she is in her late 30s and a new mother. Her baby just turned a year old. And she is really struggling with how do I 
remain passionate to the pursuit of medicine as well as remain a mom and be able to give to my daughter and model the way for my daughter. And in so many respects, she's looking to me for that. I was late in life getting my PhD. I worked and went to school and was a mother and was trying to balance all of that. And I remember when I worked at Bryan Hospital, I remember saying to my boss when I got a promotion, I need to work only four days a week. I want to be available for my family. And it was, you know, the first time someone in a position like mine had requested that and he was totally open to it. And he made it work for me. That was one of those places that it gave me this internal confidence that if people want what I have to offer, they need to be able to work with that flexible schedule that I'm offering. At the same time, I am very driven and committed to being available when necessary. But I do have concrete times when one of the things that I talk about leaders is that leaders have to be able to be still. They have to remain present. They have to practice that. So I have to practice that. So I don't want people to think, oh, I'm available 24-7. There's a part of me that is available then. But then there's a part of me that says, no, I'm going to turn everything off and I'm going to be fully present here. I think that really questions this sort of era we're coming out of and you've got to be the all things to all people. You have to multitask and, you know, sort of this over busy, like, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And, and thinking that's a badge of honor somehow, because in reality, you aren't as productive. You're typically not as happy or engaged. And eventually you burn out if that's truly the path you're on. You know, and I know in our case, my husband and I both work, I am late to motherhood because I had the opposite sort of trajectory as you did in terms of focusing on school and career first and, and had my kids later in life. But then I found I was still married to my career. Like it was a huge part of my ego and, and my self-identity. And that's challenging too, because then suddenly you're having to let go of that and think, how now do I make this family work in a different way? much like your sister is asking. And I've had to really rely on a lot of co-moms. <laughs> I call them in my neighborhood because my family doesn't live close to where we live either. So, you know, I have co-moms that help in every single way and I'm able to support them and they're able to support me. But it's having that community that is so critically important to making all this work. But then also what I appreciated about what you said there, Helen, was the power of the ask mm -hmm. and the confidence you had to say, you know what, I am worth this. And if you need this, this is what it's going to take for it to work for me. Mm -hmm. And I believe that when we do that, we empower other women to step into that as well. And that's part of our role as leaders in the season of life. Helen, we've talked a lot about women and, and really the changes that are needing to happen in the space of leadership and female power and really being inclusive in that arena. But what are your thoughts about the changes in the dynamic of families and cultures as well, where we see dual working couples now for almost the first time in history and having kids or choosing not to have kids and how all this is evolving so that we are even seeing stay-at-home dads 
That's a great question, Connie. It's actually really an exciting thing because I love seeing families being creative and how they're addressing this dual working or who's going to stay at home or what will that look like? And I've seen multiple things. I say we give permission to people to say, we need to do what works best for us. And so societally, we need to stop shaming men who stay at home as fathers and shaming women who work to provide for the family. So I feel like as a society, we need to be supportive of those creative ways that families are making it work. Families just happen in so many different ways now. Being open to how that works and what people's lives are about, I think is just so critically important. Absolutely. And you know, if it works for a family to do the traditional thing where it's mom who stays at home or mom doesn't work and chooses to stay home, hey, if that works for that family, that's equally great. So I don't want people thinking, oh, we're going to throw out traditional way of thinking in light of this other way. That's, again, either or thinking. What I want to say is we need to be okay with any type of format that a family chooses to take to make it work for that family. And the best thing we can do is come alongside them and support them. I tell you what, some of the hardest working people in our world are single parents. And I so admire what they do to support their family financially, emotionally, and everything else. And it's just so timely to have experts like yourself working on these big issues to say, you know, what does this modern life look like? What does this modern era look like? How does this evolve into the future? So the future of work changes, the future of family continues to change, the future of society continues to change as people are looking for more passion and purpose and trying to make all these things work together. For me, an inclusive leader is someone who is emotionally intelligent, who has the developmental capacity to bring people from all walks of life together and help them innovate and create things that didn't exist before. Can you provide for our listeners an example of how you've done that in your your consulting work? So I will give you um, the example of one particular person that pops out in my mind, an individual that I have worked with, an executive. He is a police officer. He's a chief of police in um, his community. And basically, during his graduate program, he had to go through some coaching. And by coaching, I'm not talking because he wasn't doing things well. I'm talking about helping to increase his capacity as a leader. And so being able to coach him to help him to understand how do I shift perspective. And one of the ways that I challenged him was to say, who wouldn't you want your children to bring home as their future spouse? You identify that individual, that population, so to speak, and that's your implicit bias. And if you can hold yourself accountable in situations where your implicit bias is getting in the way of you being effective, then to me, you are stepping into that inclusive leadership zone. And that takes vulnerability. It takes courage. It takes a certain level of self-awareness awareness of the impact I have on other people, which ties into the whole emotional intelligence piece. Yeah, I think coaching is, you know, it's growing in popularity. And I think people are starting to understand, you know, the impact that it can have. I mean, I I have a coach myself, and I, I do coaching. 
really a great coach can help you uncover those things you aren't seeing in yourself. And it sounds to me that's exactly what happened with this individual. So I'm not going to be his coach for the rest of his life, right? My hope is that the lessons that he gleaned through that process, he will be able to use that same process to glean new things about himself as he has new experiences. That's always my hope when I coach executives and also in, my, in the classroom. One of the things I do is I ask that same question of my students and they will list off everything from someone who's homeless, someone who's got a criminal record, someone who's transgender, someone who's of a different religion, a wide range of things. And I say, okay, great. Now I want you to go out into the community and I want you to serve that population because extremely difficult to serve and get in close proximity and keep my biases. Why is that, Helen? Because most of the time our biases are formed based on little information, overgeneralization. One of my areas that I absolutely love is uh, neuroscience and what we're learning about the brain and the human capacity to exclude without even recognizing that they're excluding. And so the idea is that we want to develop the prefrontal cortex in these young adults because that is where inclusion begins to take shape. Our limbic brain is the part of our brain that says, hey, I like things that are like me and I want to hang out with people that are like me and I want things to be easy. So that's where we form these biases. But when we actually encounter people who are different than us, that destroy those preconceived notions that we have, we begin to question, is this bias true? And it's, it, it's hard to be loyal to that bias for any length of time once I've had exposure to a particular population that I've spent time with, that I've gotten to know them, gotten to know their story, gotten to know their challenges, their life history. I've gotten to walk a mile in their shoes, so to speak. I think that's where this greater awareness of experiential learning, neuroplasticity, you know, that brain science piece and how these things relate is so important. So not just talking about the importance of all of this, but actually doing it, experiencing it, rewiring your brain through those experiences to make yourself a better leader and person, but ultimately to help others as well. There's such an exponential effect when we expand. So, okay, I want to I expand on that a little bit myself, Helen, and I have, I have a question for you that I'd, I'd really appreciate your insight to. What advice would you give the Trump administration right now in light of all that's happening with immigration? So I want to preface what I say <clears throat> with the idea that I am not in their shoes. I don't know how they're seeing the country. They have access to information I do not have. Uh, they have access to content I don't have access to. Given all of that, I also would challenge them to walk away from what they know for a short season of time and spend time getting to know individuals and people's stories. I really want to have them move away from this polarizing thinking of Either this is good or it's bad. I want to get them to a place where they're thinking both and. We can have 
a good, rich U.S. and value immigration. We can have a good relationship with education as well as business. So the idea of and both, I want them to get away from the polarizing. In my work, in my um, data that I've been collecting with um, the intercultural development inventory, the continuum, I have seen a shift from one developmental level to a lower developmental level, which we call polarizing, in people that I have been assessing. So I've been doing this for over a decade, uh, giving this assessment to my students at the beginning of the semester, at the end of the semester, giving it to graduate students, giving it to individuals that hire me for coaching, organizations I work with. And what I'm seeing is this shift, a societal shift to this polarization. And I cannot help but think that is as a result of the message of the leadership that we're hearing. It's either this or that. Either we're a good, strong, make America great again, or we're for immigration. Everything seems to be so extreme. It's not a thought of abundance. It's of lack. Mm -hmm. But I also appreciate what you said in the beginning. How do we understand this in a deeper way? We don't know exactly what's happening um, and why the decisions are being made. But at the same time, if we would take some time to spend time in the shoes of other people to think about how this might look, we would come out with more innovative solutions and ideas that could potentially just be better and more robust than you know, the either or lack mindset. Absolutely. In the work that I've been doing, I have seen us being able to shift that. We can develop in this area. We can grow in this area. I'd like to share a couple of stories with you of how I got interested in all of this. My dad was an executive for the National Iranian Oil Company. And he traveled all over the world and he wanted his kids to be educated in another country. And that's the reason we moved to England when I was very young to go to school. And then later I moved to the United States to go to school. So the U.S. wouldn't give visa for my parents to stay. It was only my brothers and I got to stay in a boarding school. And two months after we got here, the U.S. hostages were taken in Tehran. And all of us Iranian students were loaded up on a bus and taken to Orlando International Airport. And we had to report in and all that stuff. And getting to stay in the U.S. wasn't exactly a cakewalk. Um, there were people that were bomb, 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 Iran and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. So I, I hid who I was for a very long time. I hid that I'm Iranian. When people would say, where are you from? I would say, where do you want me to be from? Where do you think I'm from? And I was wherever they wanted me to be from. I learned to assimilate what I call forced assimilation. It was forced upon me as a way of getting along with people here. So that sense really impacted how I saw myself, how I saw my heritage, how I saw how I could contribute to society. I had to hide a part of myself in order to be able to contribute to society. It wasn't until this event happened with my father that I really stepped out into it. My dad came to visit me for a month. I hadn't seen him in a few years. Uh, he had a heart attack and then later a stroke after he left my home and he was in this hospital. He had the kind of stroke that was called the locked-in syndrome. So a piece of plaque from his carotid went into his brainstem and he was locked inside of his body until his death eight months later. 
he couldn't uh, understand any other language except our native language, even though he was multilingual. He was an executive. He traveled the world. So here he is in this bed, and we're trying to communicate with him. He couldn't move any of his body parts. He couldn't speak. He could nod just a little bit, and he could blink yes or no to our questions. So I'm speaking Farsi to my dad. I'm in the room, and in walks this nurse who's training another person, and the nurse is asking questions, and I'm speaking Farsi to my dad, and I'm kind of thinking, okay, I think I know what he's saying based on his look and I'm giving the information back to the nurse and she gets frustrated. And as she's walking out of the room, she says under her breath, I wish they would learn to speak English. It would make our job so much easier. It triggered something deep within me. I followed her out of the room and I laid into her. I tell people I verbally vomited on this poor nurse. And I'm sharing that to not say that, hey, I'm great and I was justified in what I did. Sharing that to say that it triggered something in me. And at that point, I thought, I want to do everything in my power to ensure that that doesn't happen to my father again or to any other person's father or to anybody else's family member, whoever that person is. So then when I moved to Nebraska and began working at Bryan Health, I created this diversity cultural competence and doing the training and the work in that arena. Fast forward several years and we have a situation that really got me thinking, wow, how did we go from the situation with my dad to the outcome of this situation? That particular situation was a 12-year-old boy had been hit by a truck while riding his bicycle in his community, and he was brought into our trauma center. Our hospital had a trauma center, and by the time the family arrived, they were told that their son was brain dead. And the chaplain that was working with this family was on the diversity council that I led at the hospital. He approached the family about organ donation and the family requested to have a family member in the operating room at the time of the retrieval of the organs. Well, this was against hospital policy for multiple reasons. But here's this chaplain. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, it's against hospital policy, he says, help me understand what makes this important to you. Just that simple question got him access to information. What he found out was that this family was Native American and they believed that the spirit of their son rested in his heart. They wanted the heart to stop beating, the spirit to be set free, and they chose the uncle to be in the operating room to be able to say prayers so that the spirit wouldn't go on living in someone else's body. That was their belief. The challenge for us was to get people from different parts of the hospital, decision makers, to come together and agree to allow this to happen. When that happened, we were told by Nebraska Organ Retrieval System that that was the first time in the 25-year history of organ donation at that time that a Native American family had said yes to donating the organs of a loved one. Wow. I mean, the power of seeking to understand and not making assumptions is just so incredible, isn't it? I mean, and I, I admit I had to grab a Kleenex when you're talking because, you know, to have to hide who you are to fit in, I think is um, something that is a struggle for so many in, in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's been a gift in so many ways to you as well. 
and to all of us, to be honest, to have somebody like you who has taken that experience and, and really has just turned it into a prolific practice in both your business, but then also what you do at the University of Nebraska, here at the Real Futures Institute, in, in so many ways beyond that. I mean, you're even consulting for movies. <laughs> you know, so I, I think that's fascinating. And, and I, but I also think it's, it's helpful in terms of moving away from this culture we seem to have right now of polarization into that inclusive culture that really is more global and really finds innovations that are workable for everyone. So it's not a lose-lose, but it's more of that win-win. Absolutely. And so that is exactly what got me interested in researching this. It's how do we get people to come to that level of understanding? How do we do that? And I have found a process for making that happen. And it's so exciting to watch these young people who have hidden part of who they are for up to the time they enter my classroom, anywhere from 19, 20, 21, all the way up to 55, 60, 70 year olds. And it's giving them a place and a space to fully step into who they are and accept that other people, when we allow others to be who they are, fully who they are, and we create opportunities, we become more innovative in our thinking and our problem solving and our approach to how we increase participation in a community, in an organization. It just totally changes the way we engage with the world around us. And that's what's so exciting for me is, you know, one of the areas that I really want to study is how do parents' level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence and their developmental readiness for engaging with people who are different, how does that impact the way they raise their children? Right, because even as a parent, you know, I'm like, okay, I want my kids to be global in their perspectives and their thinking, very inclusive, but also very brave and being able to stand in their own power because parenting is an interesting experiment in itself, right? I mean, how do you do all of that as a parent to make sure your kids are the best of who they can be, not just to themselves, but to others, and really then preparing them for a world that's going to be much different than what we grew up in? Absolutely. You know, in our grandparents' day, our grandparents were competing with other people, you know, in their own community, in their own area. In our parents' day, it was people in another state, you know, so there were people applying for jobs from other states. In our age, it's we're competing for positions and opportunities globally. And so how do we prepare our students, our children, to be able to not just compete at that level, but to be excited and thrilled to be engaged at that level of thinking and being. How do we do that? And that's an area that I'm really interested in studying. I want to ask you to, to look into your crystal ball, you know, become the, that futurist um, for a second. Tell us what you see in the future in terms of your expertise. What I see is that individuals who have created, I actually started calling it the superpower. They've created this internal superpower, this capacity of being resilient, of being able to shift perspective, of being able to see issues 
that others are missing and then bringing people from all different walks of life to address those issues, that is a superpower. And I believe as we continue the advancement that we're learning from neuroscience, what we're learning from global leadership studies that are happening, what we're seeing even in our own um, RFI interns who are going into these rural communities, the insights they're gaining about themselves. I feel like that is the kinds of opportunities we need to create for people. We need to help people to be able to see the perspective in that way. So understand yourself, the impact you have on other people is based on the beliefs, the values, the experiences you've had, but also be able to be totally thrilled and excited to be in the presence of people who are different than you. Because I believe we connect with people who are like us, but we absolutely grow the most when we have to engage with people who are different than us. So what opportunities can we create for engaging with people who are different than us as well as connecting with people who are like us. Human beings, we need both. Well, and I so appreciate that. And I just want to say to the world, you know, we are so excited that you've joined the Rural Futures team and the wisdom, the scholarship, but also just the leader and person that you are to help us with the Rural Service Ship program, but really expanding it into something new and different. You know, so it's more transformational for students and communities moving forward but I think the other thing that you bring to all of this, Dr. Fagan, is the fact that we can break some stereotypes about rural and urban as well. Mm-hmm. Too often we talk about rural or urban, or it's rural versus urban. It's that polarization again. And we need to really realize that we live in a global ecosystem that connects our worlds together. And, and that includes rural and urban centers because they all rely on one another um, to make this work in a sustainable forward-leaning way. And so for those students to have these experiences, I think is just fantastic. For communities to have the experience, great. But it makes me wonder as we move forward, how would you envision breaking down the stereotypes of rural versus urban and bringing those worlds together in a, a more collective, cohesive, and innovative way? I would encourage people, I would challenge people, whether you're, if you're in an urban setting, to step out into a rural setting and find the positive. I think we need to create opportunities for urban population to experience rural, not as a, I'm gonna get away from it all and go to the rural setting, but as a, how do we take what's so wonderful about rural and bring it a part of our urban setting and vice versa? How do we take so something that's so wonderful about urban and include that in part of what we do in our rural setting. And so the experiences we offer our students is powerful, I believe, through RFI. And I'm so excited and thrilled to be joining the RFI team and to be working with someone like you, Dr. Connie. I've read what you've written. I've listened to what you've shared. And I'm, I'm just excited. I think it's going to be a win-win for all of us. And we're going to learn so much together. And I believe that our life trajectory has been so different. Our backgrounds have been so different that out of those differences, we are going to be able to create exciting new opportunities for both our urban and our rural, as well as global environment for our global students 
Well, thank you, Dr. Fagan. I so appreciate that. And I also appreciate the fact that you're bringing up global because, you know, one of the things we see at RFI is, of course, you know, a lot of our work happens in Nebraska, but we are involved nationally and internationally as well and, and really intend on expanding that because many of our rural issues and urban issues are similar is what we find. And, and we've really come to the conclusion through visiting with Tufts University, Harvard University, other partners like Microsoft, that we need to ask better questions, you know, and that it's not a question of rural versus urban, but it's how do we collectively move together? But then also, you know, what is the future of rural in terms of being more inclusive and diverse? Because the populations are shifting. While some population loss is happening, we also see the migration of different people and patterns in many of those rural areas. And I think as, as those population shifts and demographic shifts continue, communities themselves are asking, how do we become more inclusive? What more can we do to be a welcoming community? How do we, you know, get people here, but also keep them here? And how do we make this work if we become smaller? So there's so many great questions around that, but there's some innovative solutions as well. I tell people, we need to ask both why questions and help me understand questions. The why questions are necessary because they help us to defend our position. But the help me understand questions are necessary because they help us expand and shift our perspective. And so we need both of those. So asking good questions involves both of those types of questions, but also being willing to listen. Not listen to answer, but listen to learn and connect and understand. Well, thank you. I think that's such powerful insight for our audience to hear. And I'd love to know from you, Helen, what, what parting words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with today? You know, I, I would say be adaptable and flexible. Be willing to engage with people who, whose perspective are different than yours. Be the kind of person that is comfortable with who they are, but also recognizes that it's important to give space for other people to be who they are fully. I, I really hope that if people take anything away from what I've shared is to be a 21st century leader takes effort, it takes intentionality, it takes a new way of thinking about culture and inclusion and differences. Thank you. That wisdom is something I think our, our listeners will continue to enjoy, can benefit from. I'd love to hear from them on how they're applying some of these things in their own life. Oh, yeah. I think at the Real Futures Institute, we definitely want this to be a very open conversation and we'd love to learn from them as well. So thank you. Absolutely. And I would love to hear from them as well. Thanks for listening to Rural Futures with Dr. Connie. Subscribe where you listen so you don't miss an episode and tell us what you think on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rural Futures. Next up, Dr. Connie talks with Nebraska Rural Hospital Association Executive Director John Roberts. John has more than 36 years of experience in healthcare working in the Nebraska Public Health Department as a rural hospital administrator and as a consultant. He is a collaborative leader showcasing Nebraska's strengths and attacking some of the most critical rural health issues at a national level. We know we're going to go through a pretty major change in the next three to five years in not only rural Nebraska, but across the country. And, and I truly believe that it, 
won't be the strongest that make that transition the best or the ones that are most financially strong at this point. I really believe it's going to be the ones who can adapt to change the best and who are able to manage that change as we go, go through this process.